If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 23 through 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you, when, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you do good to your servants according to your word. Teach us knowledge and good judgment, for we believe in your commands. You're good, and what you do is good, so teach us your decrees. Though the arrogant has smeared us with lies, we keep all your precepts with all our heart. The wicked hearts are callous and unfeeling, but we delight in your law. It is good for us to be afflicted, so we might learn your decrees. The gospel is more precious to us than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. We pray you will help us grow in wisdom in Christ's name. Amen. It is imperative that you understand the Christian religion is different from all other religions. First, it's a religion of the ear. All other religions of the eye. Second, it is a religion of faith as opposed to all others that are founded in works. Third, it is a religion of thoughtful understanding in opposition to blind acceptance. The scriptures repeatedly call Christians to hear and believe. The only visual aids in Christianity are the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Israel is called to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation of God's call to follow him. They were not called to see and know, but to hear and know. Christ in the New Testament in John 5, 25 said, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the head will hear the voice, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. These were the spiritually dead. 
those that needed a new heart so they could hear the gospel message and thus come to salvation. The risen Christ in speaking to the dead church of Sardis in Revelation 3 says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The call throughout scripture has always been to hear the word of God. This idea of hearing carries over to faith itself. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is the foundation of the believer's life. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without hearing, there can be no faith. And without faith, there can be no relationship with God. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You cannot earn your way into heaven. All other religion, religions place the means of getting to heaven right in your own hands. It's your decisions, but not through Christianity. Your entrance into heaven was purchased by Christ and is given only to those who will hear and believe in him and his work of redemption. The idea that you must hear and believe to show your salvation establishes one last principle of Christianity. That principle is thoughtful understanding. We are not called to blindly accept what we don't know or understand. The whole of Scripture was given as a testimony of the character of God. In fact, you're not left to just blindly accept that there is a God. Romans 1, verses 19 through 20, speaks of what men know. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by, all, by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse for not believing in God. Just look at the creations, what he's saying. You'll see the hand of God at work. God has made known to all men that, these, that there is a God and that he has created all things. His call has been for them to study and learn of him through his election, through his creation, I'm sorry. The Bible was given for that very reason. Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The creation reveals there is a God. And the scripture reveals his plan for mankind. It requires the thoughtful study of both to fully know God. Throughout the scriptures, men are called to meditate to contemplate, to muse, to ponder on the word of God. Proverbs 3.13 says, Happy is the man who finds his wisdom and the man who gains understanding. In 2 Peter 1.5 we're told, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to your virtue knowledge. It's just as important that you thoughtfully study God's word as it is that you hear and believe. For without any one of the three, you have an incomplete religion. You can never have a solid hope 
of your place with God. In the passage before us here this morning, we're told by the Apostle Paul about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord is good to those who love it. Our religion is of the ear, but it does not totally ignore the eye. The two sacraments the Lord gave are both visual declarations of the gospel. In these, you're given something to see. But behind what you are seeing are the same three requirements to hear, to believe, and to understand. Paul tells you that as Christ gave this sacrament, he told his disciples to do it in remembrance of him. There are four things they were called to recollect and discern. First, there is the teaching of Christ. You cannot remember nor understand these teachings unless you have studied them. Second, there is the perfect life Christ lived. Third, you have his atoning death, and you cannot remember nor understand either unless you have heard of them. Fourth, he tells you to remember and look forward, forward to the return of Christ, and this would be impossible to do without faith that he is returning. Paul received from Christ Jesus the teaching concerning this sacrament. He took that teaching and he passed it along to you. You cannot do what you do not know needs to be done. You cannot be saved until you know that you're a sinner and in need of forgiveness. You cannot enter heaven until you have been shown Jesus Christ. So one of the most important things for you to remember and to understand is the teachings of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter agrees with Paul on this. He writes in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before, my, before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter makes it clear. If you want to live a wholesome life, you must be engaged in wholesome thinking, and the only way to do that is to meditate on the Word of God. Peter says, we need to trust in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Paul says, the whole of all of you, of all you are and all you do is found in the knowing of God's word. In other words, you can't know yourself if you don't really know God's word. John 20 verse 31 says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Christ said in John 16, 1, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. He says his followers will be persecuted. They'll be treated with all manner of contempt. In verse 4, he adds, I have told you this, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Jesus has given the scriptures in order that you may be prepared, prepared to handle all of life's strange circumstances. There is nothing in life that can come upon a believer and derail him from his faith. You have God's word, and it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is complete. 
All you need to do is study it, hide it in your heart, and remember it. Jesus spoke in John 14, 26 of the help he would give in this. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. This is the promise of assurance. Paul establishes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23, the importance of his source. For I receive from the Lord that which I delivered to you. It came from Jesus. Paul didn't make it up. He establishes the importance of remembering where these things came from. This sacrament came directly from Jesus Christ himself. Why? Why is it so important that you remember the things Christ taught? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through also he made the worlds. You realize, here is the final revelation of God to man. It came to you through Jesus Christ and is thus of invaluable importance to you. It being the final word means the revelation of who God is and his great plan of redemption for his people is complete. There's nothing else to be done. Christ has done it all. He's fulfilled the old covenant. He's established the new covenant. There's no new word from God. Therefore, you must remember what Christ has said. If you want to know your heavenly Father and want assurance of his, your place with him, you come to this table remembering not only who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has said, but you must also remember what he taught. This does not take away from what he did. It adds to it. You must remember what he taught. You must understand what he did and did for you. Only then can you come to this table to reflect on who he is and what he has done. If you don't first hear, then you can't believe. And this table is reserved for those who have heard and believed. Here, the word of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23b and 24, as he speaks of the things you need to remember concerning what he has done. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You have remembered. You've remembered the teaching of Jesus that you are a sinner, that you have need of a Savior, and that he is the only one who can save you. You have heard him and believed him, and he was invited, he has invited you to come to his table. At the table, he asked that you remember what he has done. The first thing is that Jesus gave his body, and it was broken for you. Most commentators Take this simply as a part of remembering his death, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, I want to take it a little further, and I think I can do so with good biblical warrant. The idea expressed here of the body represents more than just Christ's death. 
It also represents his life in the flesh. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was sent into this world to win the redemption of his people. This is what we know as the doctrine of the incarnation, which means he came and took on flesh. He took on a real human body and spirit. He became the God-man. He then lived the perfect life that no sinful man coming through Adam by ordinary generation could ever have lived. To be your sacrifice, it was necessary that Jesus be perfect. In Exodus 12, 5, the Israelites were told, your lamb shall be without blemish. In John 1.29, John the Baptist says of Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is clearly established as the God-man. The one who has been sent to live the perfect life required by law for acceptance before God. Jesus expands on this in John 6, verses 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Here, Christ says the bread represents his flesh, and his flesh represents the perfect life. He is, was sent into this world to live. The body equals the bread. The bread equals the life. There is even further proof when you consider what he says of the body. This is my body which is broken for you. Christ had no broken bones by testimony of the gospel of John 19.33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. It goes on in verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. What was broken was the perfect life he had lived. It was broken in death. John Calvin says the Greek word used here for broken means sacrifice. His life was sacrificed or given on behalf of his people. Without the sacrifice of his perfect life, you could never have been redeemed from your sin. That life had to be laid down voluntarily as the grounds for the righteousness you would be given as you come hearing and believing in Jesus Christ. So in this statement, you're called to remember the perfect life Christ lived and then gave on your behalf. This is what Christ meant by your need to eat his body. The perfect life was for you, and the eating represents you're receiving it by faith. A lot of people struggle understanding assurance. This sermon speaks to how you can grow in assurance. The greatest gift of assurance God gives is the gospel. If you desire to grow in assurance, listen to God's word. Meditate on it, remember its promises, and grow in your understanding of the hope it gives. As you come to this table, 
You must come remembering the teachings of Christ concerning God and his holiness, man and his sinfulness, Christ and his work of redemption. As you consider the work of redemption, you must remember the perfect life lived on behalf of his people. Knowing that without his perfect life, no work of redemption could ever have been accomplished. Knowing that without his perfect life, you could have no completion. As a, you partake of the bread this morning, give thought to that perfect life lived for you. Then as the cup is passed, your attention should be directed to the completion of your redemption, Christ's death on the cross. Verse 25. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the words in the same manner are used to parallel the taking of the bread and the cup. These two cannot be separated. You cannot have a complete covenant without both the perfect life and the atoning death. In the Jewish Passover meal, they used four cups. Each cup had a specific purpose to convey some aspect of God's dealing with his people. The taking of the cup after supper corresponds to the third cup and signifies God's blessings. It was at this moment in the Passover meal that Christ chose to establish the new covenant. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood represented the death required for the establishment of a covenant. In the Old Testament, we see the same thing, Exodus 24, 8. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. In the Old Covenant, Moses only sprinkled animal blood. This represented the need for a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, in order to have the forgiveness of sins. Sacrifice in this case meant the sacrifice of a life, and as we have seen, it had to be a perfect life. The blood was the sign of that sacrifice. With the animals of the old covenant, the blood only acted as a covering for sin, and only then for a short period of time. But with Christ's sacrifice of his perfect life comes the perfect atoning death. Hebrews 10:14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The shedding of Christ's blood thus represents that atoning death. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Here is the completion of the covenant, the completion of your redemption. The covenant was made not as an agreement between two parties in which both had work to perform. It was a unilateral disposition made by one. God is that one. God made promises to establish the covenant, set requirements for the keeping of it, and penalties should the covenant be violated. The promise was eternal life. The requirement was obedience. The penalty, death. Jesus Christ was sent to fulfill each and every part of the covenant. He was the gift of eternal life. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling the need for perfect obedience. He offered himself as a sacrifice to take on the penalty for the failure of his people in keeping the covenant. 
This is exactly what God told Joseph concerning Mary at the birth of Jesus in Matthew 121. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now understand this. Everything has been accomplished for you in this covenant. You have been given the greatest possible gift anyone could be given in this covenant. The cup of this table represents those blessings. It represents that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. You have no worth that would allow you to deserve this cup. You have no money that can purchase this cup. You can do no work to earn this cup. The only way you can come to this cup and properly partake of it is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. How tragic it is, many today believe they deserve this cup or can purchase it through their church or can earn it by good works. This cup was given for the people of Christ by his works. Works you are called to remember and understand to come to this table. Those works are his revelation, his perfect life, and his atoning death. There are false teachers who will tell you the Christian should understand he is a creature of worth. It's extremely important to understand that correctly. Yes, you as a human being have worth. It's worth that is inherently yours because you were created in the image of God. That was the foundation of the capital punishment edict God gave to Noah. As one person to another, we are to see each other as persons of infinite worth. We are instructed as Christians to hold others of infinitely more righteousness than ourselves. But that worth does not extend to heaven. Because of man's rebellion, he now has no worth in God's eyes. The only way you can achieve worth in the eyes of God is to come to Jesus Christ. It is only his life and death that can bestow on you a worth in God's eyes that is the message of this table. Jesus explains this in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Fruit is the worth of the tree. Without Jesus, which is the fruit, you have no fruit, you have no worth. The apostle called you to remember the final results of what this, the promises of this covenant lead to. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Jesus himself commanded that this table was to be done as often as you will in remembrance of his sacrifice. You can also see in this the importance of keeping the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup connected. You cannot be saved by what the bread represents alone, nor by what the cup represents alone. The covenant is only complete when both elements are present. Without the perfect life, there can be no atoning death. And without the atoning death, life accomplishes nothing for you. There are those today who want to downplay Christ's death. 
I talked to a man a few years ago who just adamantly refused to accept that Christ's death on the cross was from God. He said it was not something God would do, allow his son to be executed. He could not see how Christ's death would save anyone. His problem was he saw his own worth as being great enough to save him, so Christ's sacrificial death had no meaning in his mind. This man missed one very important fact. We all begin life spiritually dead because of sin, and thus we are worthless in God's eyes. Jeremiah 2, 5, reading from the NIV. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. This man failed to understand. He had broken the covenant. We had broken the covenant long before Christ came. And it was only by such a one as Christ that the covenant could be fulfilled and his death was a most important piece of that fulfillment. When when you failed to remember the teachings of Christ, you will never find the glorious fulfillment of this covenant you will never know assurance until you understand that Christ, what Christ has done for you. The death of Christ completed the works required by the covenant to save his people from their sins. But the covenant does not stop at that point. It's an everlasting covenant. Once you are in that covenant, you are a part of God's kingdom and the promise made, the promises made are yours. They belong to you. You can rest in them. You can be assured of their power to save you. The last thing Paul called you to remember as you come to this table is the promise that Jesus Christ will return. This is just as important as the other things he has called you to remember. Without Christ's return, what would be the point of all the rest? to be saved from your sins, to live out your life in this old sinful world and then to die, and that's all, that's the end? That doesn't make any sense. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. This table, this table represents the beginning and the end of our redemption. It stands as the foundation of our assurance. You must stand firm in all that it is represented and called you to recollect and discern. Jesus came to the flesh, in the flesh, to reveal to you the wonderful plan of God's redemption for his people. You must know this plan. It is imperative that you understand what this table represents. He lived the perfect life required by the law for the fulfillment of God's covenant with man. He offered that life as a sacrifice to appease the terrible wrath of God against those who rebelled and would not keep his covenant. He also was the embodiment of the everlasting promise of the covenant that all men, all men who would hear and believe would have everlasting life in him. I pray that you have all seen yourself in the light of this supper and are prepared to come to this table. You come only only when you have seen Jesus Christ as the only Savior of souls. Let us pray. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. 
For great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Father, splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and joy are your dwelling place. We ascribe to you, Lord, your people ascribe to you the glory due your name. We bring an offering of praise and come before you. We worship you in the splendor of your name. We come in the glory of your holiness. Hear our prayer. Receive our praise that it may bring glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.